I have been a fool. You forced it on me. You ought to have commended me, since I am not in any way inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you, including signs and wonders and miracles. So in what way are you worse off than the other churches? Except that I personally did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. Look, I am ready to come to you this third time. I will not burden you, since I am not seeking what is yours, but you. For children ought not save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Now granted, I did not burden you, yet slyly as I am, I took you in by deceit. Did I take advantage of you by any of those I sent you? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? Didn't we walk in the same spirit and in the same footsteps? Have you been thinking all along that we were defending ourselves to you? No, in the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ, and everything, dear friends, is for building you up. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want, and you may not find me to be what you want. Perhaps there will be quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence, and I will grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented of the moral impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they practiced. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you that you are in this place. We, uh, I, I confess it's easy to take for granted that you would hear our prayers and care about us, but what a blessing, what, a, what an awful, fearful situation it would be if you would not hear us, if you were distant from us. But we thank you that in Christ you are near. Lord, in these times of uncertainty, we confess, we're reminded of how much we need you. We want to admit we need you we thank you for a promise of an eternal home where wars will cease. Bless those people who are, who are trying to do your will. Through Christ we pray. Amen. You may be familiar with Jeff Foxworthy. He, uh, before he was a television show dude, game show dude, he uh, was a comedian. One of the things that he was known for was this bit of, you know, you might be a redneck if, having grown up in Pennsylvania, I think I can identify with some of these. He said, you might be a redneck if you've ever cut your grass and found a car. <laughs> if the blue book value of your truck goes up and down, depending on how much gas is in it, you might be a redneck. I can identify with that. Uh, you might be a redneck if you've ever financed a tattoo. Uh, I like, love this one. If your mom can tell off a state trooper, 
without removing the Marlboro from her lips. You might be a redneck, and you might be a redneck if you've ever been in a custody battle over a hunting dog. Uh, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that we're looking at here, beginning with verse 11, uh, has his own you might be list, but it's not you might be a redneck, it's you might be spiritually immature. You might be stuck in some spiritual immaturity if, and he shares four signs of spiritual immaturity. Now, immediately if I'm sitting where you are, I'm thinking, man, that's kind of negative. Who wants to focus on, you know, this should be a positive thing. Well, Paul's point, actually, he loves them like children, and his desire is to help them get unstuck. And he knows the first step to that is awareness. A person once wrote, recently wrote, Dr. Henry Cloud, a Christian counselor. Dear Dr. Cloud, I'm in great need to change my life and to become an emotionally healthy person. To which Cloud responded, friend, you're going to get there because of that phrase, I need. He said, do you realize how many people never realize that they need to change? They just feel like bad stuff is happening. So they maybe feel like they're bad or they're victims and they're passive and they can't do anything about it, but you own something, he said. That's the key to changing everything. You said, I need, I need help. I need, he said, is the most powerful phrase to begin the process of change. Didn't Jesus teach that in the Beatitudes when he began, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want the life, the relationship, the the future that God has for you? Admit that you're poor. Admit you're broken. Admit, I need help. Begins with humility. And so that's Paul's spirit here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. These people he sees as his spiritual children, and he's trying to help them move from unawareness, a blindness to where they're stuck spiritually, to awareness so they can grow. Now, let's be honest, we all, I I don't care, it doesn't matter who you are, we all identify with these signs that Paul describes. We all can grow, and we will if we hear his voice and follow. First, for instance, the Apostle Paul says, you might be spiritually immature if you lack appreciation for mature Christian leaders, mature Christian leaders servants, because the world tends to be stuck by a fascination with style over substance, appearance over true and good. In 1 Thessalonians verse 5, or chapter 5, uh, 1 Thessalonians is the first letter that Paul ever writes. He writes it to the church in Thessalonica, which is up in Macedonia, where he is probably as he writes this. He says, acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. See, people of substance, mature people, focus on character. Qualities like Paul says, work hard, care for you, lead, admonish you. People who are concerned with service and eternal things. Spiritually immature people are fascinated with shallow things, not the eternal. 
with talent over character. Paul says you are so impressed with the shallow. That's why he begins by saying, I've been a fool, but you forced me to it. If you were here last week, you remember Paul began this chapter by saying, um, I really don't want to boast, but you forced me to share my credentials. I'd much rather talk about Christ and focus on Christ, but you are so impressed by the big talk of false teachers. I'll do the whole credibility comparison contrast with you. That's what Paul's getting to in verse 11 when he says, I've been a fool, but you forced me to it. You ought to have commended me since I am not in any way superior to those super apostles, even though I'm nothing. You see Paul's humility. The bottom line is I'm just dust, blessed by God. See, if they were mature, Paul wouldn't have had to commend himself to them. But they're impressed with worldly things, self-promoters, big talkers. Our generation needs this, don't we? I don't know if it's television, movies, I don't know all the reasons why, we, but we tend, to be, we tend to be people who value style over substance. Some have speculated, just look at the, look at the people who are going to get elected and that we have elected. Look at the ads and the shallow appeals of political ads. Some have speculated that some of the great leaders in the United States history probably couldn't get elected today. Abraham Lincoln is considered the greatest or second growing of the first two greatest presidents in American history, but he would not have done well in this media genic age. One contemporary of Lincoln said his person was ungainly, you know, personally he was ungainly, he was stooped in shoulders. His head was oversized. His eyes were gray. Generally, he was a very sad man, and his countenance indicated it. William Herndon said when he spoke, his voice was shrill, squeaky, piping, unpleasant. He would not have done well on television. His general look and form, his pose was wrinkled and dry. Everything seemed to be against him. But what he lacked for in style and appearance, he more than made up for in substance. But would you listen to him today? You know, there are preachers in the 19th century used to preach for a couple of hours sometimes. Some would just read their texts. No dramatics. And God used that to create things like the Great Awakening. But would people listen to that today? We tend to be more impressed with people who can manipulate emotions. That's the situation in Corinth. And if you stop and think about it, how could these people not be impressed with Paul? God was impressed with Paul. He, he asked Paul to write, he had Paul write almost half the New Testament. They should have been impressed with Paul's spiritual authority. Verse 11, he says, the signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you, including the signs and wonders and miracles the Bible says in Acts 19, 11, when Paul was in Ephesus, God was performing extraordinary miracles by his hands. They should have been impressed with Paul's sacrifice, verse 13. So in what way are you worse off than the other churches except that I personally didn't burden you? You know, I, I sacrificed for you. Forgive me for this wrong, he says sarcastically. They should have been impressed by Paul's kindness and compassion to them. Verse 14. Look, I'm ready to come to you a third time, and I will not burden you since I'm not seeking what is yours but you. For children ought not save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Paul says, you're like children to me. And 
children would pay for parents, parents pay for children. When, when Laura and I were younger, if we go out to eat with my dad, my dad was still working, still had income. We, we were working but didn't have much. And so dad would always pay the bill. And we were glad to let him pay the bill. My dad is now in his late 80s, fixed income. And you know, if we go out to eat, he still wants to pay the bill. And he would pay the bill if we let him pay the bill. Why? Because there's something in parents that just want, it's like parents should pay for the kids, not kids for the parents. And all the kids here are saying, amen, I think that's true. Well, that's not the point. The point is Paul's responsibility here for them. But haven't you ever noticed how easy it is to take advantage of people who are humble, who are the most giving? So Paul writes in verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for you, but if I love you more, am I to be loved less? Sometimes it is those humble, giving, generous people that we just kind of overlook because they're just so faithful. Now, don't be too hard on yourself if you tend to be appearance over substance kind of person. That's human nature. Love the story of the time when God is looking for a leader in Israel. He goes to the house of Jesse. He sends Samuel the prophet. And they're like, bring out your sons. God says one of your sons is going to be the next king. And you know who the last person they think is going to be appointed, anointed? The youngest, David. And Samuel says, that's because while man looks at the outward, God looks at the heart. That's human nature, to be shallow. But if we are going to grow spiritually, we have to be deeper than that. We have to refuse to be manipulated by appearances and style and look for solid things like character, service, faithfulness. One, husband, one wife recently wrote, in our marriage, I will admit that I took my husband for granted. I took for granted that he would be here forever. I was a good wife, but I could have nagged less, listened more, appreciated the small things that my husband had done for me. What I would do right now to see my husband's boots in the middle of the floor, his dirty clothes on the floor, dirty dishes in the sink, but I'll never have that opportunity with him ever. The day the coroner knocked on my door and changed my life forever with the news that he delivered, I did not, and still not to this day, remember the things I nagged my husband about. Wives and husbands, she writes, every day you are blessed to see your spouse. Take time to appreciate them before it's too late. Husbands, wives, easy to take each other for granted, isn't it? Easy to look on Facebook and see how that husband is so much more romantic than yours. You know, to get this Hollywood image to think, boy, if my wife just were loving me like that. Deep people appreciate the godly people who serve them and are faithful Kids appreciate parents who are godly examples. Even though their jobs aren't as impressive as your friends, we appreciate the people who serve week after week in places like the nursery or teach kids who set up here and tear down afterward elders who serve 
year after year, small group leaders, ministry leaders who sacrifice. There's a burden that some people carry around here because they realize they're carrying a huge load. They like everybody to sacrifice, but if, they, if everybody won't, they're going to still. Youth volunteers who serve and, and have full-time jobs, but they'll sacrifice weeks of work, vacation time to go on trips, or they'll come here every Sunday night to help lead the youth in their ministry. While the rest of us are watching football, they're coming back here. While the rest of us are worn out, they're serving. A mark of maturity is when we start to get impressed with the, with the faithful Apostle Pauls in our life. More impressed than we are with the false teachers who have PhDs behind their name and they teach in impressive schools. With the false teachers who are published by impressive magazines and newspapers. By false teachers who get votes and are good looking and do well on television but are not godly people. Next, you might be spiritually mature if your normal reaction is to assume the worst in people. Spiritual immaturity, one sign of it is you're always suspicious of other people's motives. You probably sensed the tension in Paul's letter here. So much of 2 Corinthians is a positive, encouraging letter, but here at the end, he encourages them with harsher language. It's difficult. These Christians, you see, aren't just taking Paul for granted. They're assuming the worst about him. They've said, sure, Paul hasn't taken money from us yet, but you know he's collecting that money for the church in Jerusalem, and he's probably going to pocket that and take it with him. Paul responds to that in verse 16. He says, now granted, I did not burden you, yet sly as I am, I took you in by deceit. Again, he's being sarcastic. That's what he's being accused of, you see. Paul says, where's the evidence? What about the men I sent? Verse 17, did I take advantage of you by any of those I sent to you? I urged Titus to go, and Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? Didn't we walk in the same spirit, in the same footsteps? Paul's saying, where is the evidence for your skepticism? Why, why are you assuming the worst, that I'm going to take advantage of you? Do you ever struggle because you assume the worst of people? This is part of our culture right now. People just assume. Somebody says the wrong word, oh, it's racist. You know, somebody misspeaks, oh, they're biased against Really? Well, I know he said that. He doesn't really mean it. I know uh, she just tells stories like that because she wants to name drop. She just wants people to think that she's spiritual. He just wants people to think that he's smarter than everybody else. That preacher just wants a crowd. She, she goes to church now. I know, but he's just going to get clients. She said, don't judge or you'll be judged. With measure you use, it'll be measured out to you. Jesus' point there is not that we never make judgments, but is you make wrong judgments and you really are judging yourself. One of the things that I do these days is I like to walk about five, six times a week for a number of reasons. I will walk for several miles. And one of the places that I walk by is an elderly home, a convalescent center as well. And a lot of times people are sitting out front. And so I've, I just like to walk over. I used to walk past, and I thought, no, I need to go offer to pray for those people. Brett, you're a stinking pastor. Go pastor, you know? And so I'll, I'll go by, and I've got to know, I got to know this one guy. He's about 86 years old named Thane from Brooklyn. 
and it's not hard to to discern he's from Brooklyn. Got the accent, got the attitude. I love the guy. He's just so funny. But one day I was talking to Thane, and there was a new guy sitting beside him. I hadn't met him before. And so I said, hi, my name is Brett. What's your name? He said, why should I tell you my name? It's like, whoa, you don't have to. I mean, really, I'm not exaggerating. It was kind of bitter. It's like, well, I'm a pastor. I just like to, you know, get to know people's names so I can pray for them. When I, he heard I was a pastor, you know what he said? He said, you know what I do whenever I hear somebody's a pastor? He said, I grab my wallet because I know they want my money. It's like, man, I've not even met you before. That's me. I just want your money. That's the only reason I'm there. Kind of thing. It's just like, you know, but I, I, there's a part of me, I wasn't offended by that because I thought he's saying a lot more about himself than he is about me. When we assume the worst in other people, it's really hard to love. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. It is hard to be cynical. It's hard to assume the worst in people and to love them at the same time. If you do that, you're going to be embarrassed. I heard about a tough company owner who walked into the shipping department, found a young man lounging on a shipping crate about, looked like he was about to fall asleep. He said, young man, how much do you make a week? He said, about $600. He says, a guy gets out a check, writes a check for $800. He said, here, take this, get out of here, don't ever come back. Kid did. The owner went directly to the department manager and said, who hired that guy? The manager said, Nobody. He's the delivery guy just waiting to pick up a package. <laughs> Have you ever assumed the worst about somebody and then later been up, you know, embarrassed? You ever get frustrated because the person in front of you is driving so slowly and then you pass him and you realize it's an 87-year-old guy who's doing the best that he can? You know, you're really frustrated because the person who's serving you in the restaurant has a bad attitude, and then later on they come and, oh, I apologize. I've been a really bad day. I have a sick child at home and and all of a sudden it's like, ugh, why do they assume the worst about this person? Titus 1.15, to the pure, everything is pure. You're starting to show maturity when rather than assuming the worst, to the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and their conscience are defiled. If you pride yourself in your cynicism and assuming the worst in others, don't, don't compliment yourself for somehow being mature and shrewd. It's defiled. We live in a defiled generation, don't we? One of the reasons that I, some of you know Ron Ferguson, Pat Ferguson's dad. Many things impressed me about Ron. Nothing more than the fact that he is not cynical. It would be very easy for Ron to be cynical because not only was he an FBI agent his entire life, not only was he in charge of the document section, not only was he in charge of all of the polygraphers, probably the leading polygrapher in the United States uh, when he was working, he wrote the polygraph manuals for the FBI in the 70s and then he rewrote them in the 90s before he retired. And if I were Ron, a polygrapher, it'd be really easy for me just to assume the worst about people, but he doesn't. I asked Ron, why not? He wrote, first my folks taught me to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Both mom and dad had a wonderful godly worldview and a positive attitude that simply had no place for cynicism. 
That was reinforced in me by belief in Scripture. Like, it's difficult to be cynical when the fruit of the Spirit is developing in you. God wants love, and love always trusts. By practicing forgiveness that avoids bitterness, by remembering that everybody's created in God's image and God loves everybody. Regarding polygraph, he added, really, while you're alert that you may encounter falsehood, you're looking for truth. Isn't that difference? While many exams are conducted on subjects who are suspected of criminal acts, many are conducted to validate or corroborate the examinee's statements to substantiate their own innocence. Also, he said, attendant to every examination is the notion, as Oscar Wilde said, that truth is rarely pure and never simple. He said, it was never difficult for me to conduct an exam assuming the examinee, even a suspect in a case, was being truthful until proven otherwise. I, I read that and I thought, that says more about, that says a lot about Ron's character, doesn't it? A lot about his heart. Isn't it sad that we live in a time that when we've lost innocent until proven guilty, if somebody gets accused of something, especially if it's somebody that you don't like, think about how we do this in politics. If it's somebody you don't like, you not only assume that they're guilty, you hope they're guilty. It's a defiled heart. It's spiritually mature. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. If you love people, on occasion, you will be taken for granted. But I think it's better to be taken advantage of occasionally than to get stuck in fear and suspicion and cynicism. You might be spiritually immature, Paul would add, if you have a bad attitude, a negative spirit, um, Wayne Smith is an old preacher. He doesn't live anymore, but he was a big uh, preacher of a large church in Lexington, Kentucky. He had a great sense of humor. He used to say, <laughs> he, used, he used to say, I think there are a lot of people who are 100% doctrinally correct who will go to hell for a bad attitude. I thought that was pretty funny. He'd spent a lot of time around church people, obviously. That's the Apostle Paul's concern here in verse 19. He says, have you been thinking all along that we're defending ourselves? No, in the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ and everything difference for building you up. He says, Paul, Paul says, this is not about defending me. I'm trying to build you up in these things. He says, for I fear, verse 20, that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want, and you may not find me <laughs> to be what you want. He says, I'm afraid I'm going to find some sin there, and it's not going to be good, and you're not going to like my response. And then Paul goes on to list seven qualities of a bad attitude, a negative spirit, with the result. Number eight, perhaps we'll be quarreling. Jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and the result, disorder. Um, I don't have time to really deal with it. I'm going to, going to share with the, about this more in a devotion this week. 
The one I would focus on, though, to get the whole picture is, is arrogance, pride, the mother of all sins, the, the, the sin that gives birth to all others. Conceit is always comparing, seeing yourself as superior. The Bible says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. But the world says, you look out for yourself first. You consider yourself first. You lift yourself up first. If you don't look out for you, nobody else is going to. And that causes disorder. That causes trouble in relationships, in the home, in the family, in the church. My wife designs flowers. Their flower shop got a call a few weeks ago, recently. It was the mother of the groom ordering flowers for the wedding. Part of her order, she said, is she wanted to buy Get a, she needed to get a corsage for the mother of the bride, and she also wanted a corsage made for her. And she made it very clear, would you make sure that my corsage is clearly larger than the corsage for the mother of the bride? And then she added, because that's just who I am. She said that with her, she was really serious. I heard that Lord told me that story. I was just like, oh my word, you think there's trouble in that family? There's gonna be, because that's just who I am. That's pride that divides. We live in that, in that kind of the world around us. One of the things that drives me crazy, how about you? Watching football this afternoon, some guy is gonna tackle somebody, which is his job, which like has been done a million times, and he's gonna get up and like boast around, you know, like, like he's somehow discovered the cure for cancer. You know, it's like this big arrogance. Why? Because that's just who he is. It's like, do your job. Don't be arrogant. We go in and, and, and we, we demand customer service in Northern Virginia. Why? Because that's just who we are. In high school, some kid jumps in front of you in line. And driving the car, somebody cuts you off in traffic. Why? Because that's just who we are, right? Somebody puts you down at work or steps on you. Politicians boast taking credit for things they don't deserve. Why? Because that's just who they are. Paul says it shouldn't be. Humble yourself before the Lord, the Bible says, and he'll exalt you. Spiritually immature people are self-seeking and arrogant. But to break through that, you need the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness gentleness and self-control. It goes back to the first thing. You need substance, not appearance. Finally, though, Paul says you might be stuck spiritually if you find yourself regularly participating in sins of the flesh. Verse 21, I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence. And I'll grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented of the moral impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they practiced. Moral immaturity just means anything less than holy. Sexual sin um, means any, any sexual activity outside of marriage, one wife, one, one, one man, one woman. It's the word pornea. The context is any sexual sin as defined in the Old Testament. Don't say the silly thing of, oh, this isn't in the New Testament, it doesn't matter. No, the context for all of this is the Old Testament. 
See, they need to hear this in Corinth because Corinth was a lascivious place, rampant in their immorality and proud of it. Sailors loved a port at Corinth. Corinth was kind of like San Francisco. It was a a port town, except it actually had, it was on an isthmus, so it had ports on both east and western sides. And what, sta- what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. Sensuality just meant all kinds of unrestrained indulgence. One commentator said, the, Corinthian, the Corinthians lived in a society which did not regard adultery as sin and expected a person to take his pleasures wherever he could. In the words of Jeremiah, the prophet, they'd forgotten how to blush. Sure, we live together. There's no blush. Sure, we have sex for America. No, no blushing. Sure, we're sexually active. But in the middle of this gutter culture, God said to Paul, start a church. God reached these people and changed them dramatically. In fact, Paul wrote to these people in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He said, don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. It's my favorite line. And some of you used to be like this. You afraid you can't change? Look at these people. But you are washed, you're forgiven. You are sanctified. You've been changed. You are justified. You're made righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When I was a kid, we used to sing a song, Wonderful Grace of Jesus, greater than all our sins. The sins overwhelmed these people, but God's grace was greater. Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his compassion for those who fear him. And he took their hearts of stone and gave them a heart of flesh. And what he did for them, he'll do for you and me. Paul says, complete your repentance. Some of them had relapsed. And they need to experience change. And so Paul wraps this up by saying to them, hey, listen, here's the hope. Real change is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul makes it clear here and in other places, real change is possible, but it doesn't happen by trying. It happens by going into training. I know many of us here are frustrated by our inability to change. There are many people that are, I just can't change. I'm I'm born this way kind of thing. And you can't change just by trying. The Apostle Paul admitted that in Romans 7. He said, he said, I tried to change by trying. The good that I wanted to do, I don't do. The evil I don't want to do, that I do. A wretched man that I am who will save me from this bondage to death. Know what the answer is? Not trying harder. It is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. Jesus says, come into training with me. What does that look like? Again, I'm indebted to how Henry Cloud has put this together. He says, first of all, it begins where we started today. It begins by admitting you need to change. Admit you have a problem. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't judge your need. I love that line. Don't judge your need. Just admit it. Confess it. Receive God's forgiveness. Don't get stuck in it. He's the great physician. Let him heal you. Next, and this is where it gets harder, surround yourself with mature Christian people. 
You're not made to go through this alone. You cannot change by yourself. Does a fish know it's wet? No. A fish just is wet. It's how it swims. It's how it's always lived. Do you know all the stuff in you that needs to change? Do you see? No. You need somebody on the outside who's spiritually mature who can help you. You need somebody on the outside when you don't believe in yourself who believes in God and believes in you, who loves you. Again, perfect love casts out fear. You're afraid you'll never change. You need some people who love you, who are safe, who walk you through, and you can experience the love of God through this. You hear about people deconstructing. One of the saddest things about this generation is the number of people who are proud of their, oh, I've deconstructed. I used to go to a church that believed the Bible, and I, now I've deconstructed, and liberal people love to exalt them. One thing they all have in common is isolation. One of the things they all do, and they pride themselves in it, is, but I'm not around those people anymore. And Satan applauds. He's won because he has them defeated. You need people. As iron, the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. You need godly pe- people who will believe in you and no- nobody else does. You need godly people who know biblical wisdom, who can help you along the way. Mature people who will encourage you and challenge you. You need a small group of people, of Christians. I'm not telling you where to get it. We offer them. I'd love for you to be part of one of ours. If you're online and you're isolated, it's really difficult. It's easy to get stuck in that situation. Next, here's the thing. Be patient. Give it time. From time to time, God changes people instantly. I've heard people say, I prayed and never, never smoked again. I prayed, never had a desire to drink again. Well, Wonderful for you, that's not most of people's experience. Even when Jesus healed people, often there were steps that they had to take in the process. Because God does, wants to do something more than just change your behavior. He wants you to draw you closer to Him. And in the process of being healed, you have to depend more on Him. You have to experience His power. You get to know Him more as loving Father but he does that for you one day at a time, one hour at a time, one choice at a time. And as you surrender every choice, every thought to God, not by trying, just by saying, God, I surrender this thought to you, God, and by training, he'll change you. That's why you need weekly worship. Because your mind thinks in certain ways. Literally, there are neuropathways that have been connected that you have to get disconnected and renewed. In fact, actually, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, because of God's mercy, because of God's grace, not because God is going to do this to you, but because of his mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. God, I surrender my life to you, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. But don't be conformed to this age. Don't think like this world. Live like this, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. So you may discern what is good and pleasing and perfect will of God. How do you renew your mind? You worship weekly. You read the Bible and pray every day. You memorize scripture. Not just because it's a spiritual discipline that like really spiritually superior people do, but because you're saying, God, I can't, but you can. Take my insane thinking, my lost thinking, my dark thinking, and lead me to live in the light. And what happens is then over time, God changes your heart. You may still get tempted, but in the temptation you think, you choose to be gracious 
Because it's like, uh, you know, I don't want to be angry anymore. I don't want to fight anymore. You choose to be self-controlled because it's like, you know, I, I like the taste. God's changed my taste. I like discipline more than the consequences of being out of control. You choose faithfulness over lust because all of a sudden your heart is like, I love my spouse. I love my kids. I love my Lord. And I want to choose love and not this momentary temptation. And what you discover is over time, God changes you through training from the inside out by his mercy, by his grace. You know the next thing you need to do? Final thing I would say? You need to help somebody else. Mike Fuster is in my small group still on Saturday morning. He says, we all need somebody in front of us and somebody behind us because when you are helping somebody else, you know you have to stay sharp. You think, I can't, I don't want to do, I, I want to help this person. I, I can't do that action. I'm be a bad example. I can't do that. I, I need to be close to God. I need to hear God's voice. And if I get, if I get involved in that kind of sin, rebellion against God, I'm going to feel distant from God. I, help, I want to help that person. Real change is possible. How do I know? There are lots of people in this room who can tell you their stories, how God's changed them. I love the story of Mike and Maria Fuster. Take a look at this picture. It's a picture Mike sent me a couple of weeks ago. It's at their, in their apartment in, in, in Miami. May God forgive him for moving to such a nice place. But <laughs> when Mike and Maria first started coming to New Life, they were lost as a you know, pirate and the blind pirate in the ocean. He, they, I mean, they were so far from God, addicted, involved in lots of sinful stuff, but they started to come to worship. They hear, heard Christ. They surrendered to Christ. They got involved in a small group. They got involved in serving. They started reading the Bible. They started re- memorizing the Bible. They started to lead. They led Celebrate Recovery, and now they've moved to Miami, and that is a picture of a church that God is starting in their apartment. Can God, yes, thank you, Lord. And I say that, that's a dramatic story, I know. But Mike, if you were standing here, we'd tell you, if God can change us, there's hope for everybody. If God can forgive us, his grace is greater than your need. Preacher once asked, if you could get to where you're going, where are you going to be? If you become the person you are becoming, who will you be? God has so much more for us than a lost world, so much more than we have for ourselves. What's your next step to spiritual maturity? Do you need to appreciate mature Christian servants? Do something this week. Do you need to catch yourself when you start assuming the worst in people and start to assume the best, see Christ? Maybe... You need to surrender your negative attitudes to God. Is there repentance for sins of the flesh so you can go into training and let him make you new? What's your next step? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active and pray that you would speak to us and we would take next steps with you today. It's through Christ I pray. Amen.
If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the first step is to surrender to him as Savior and Lord. You're not made to do life on your own. If you've never given your life to Christ, you've never been baptized, make that decision today. Be surrendered in the waters of baptism, raised to walk a new life. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we're going to take a communion together. What's your next step? Go to the cross where Jesus died and hold on to the cracker that reminds you of his body given for you, his blood shed for you. You don't have to get stuck in your shame. You don't have to get suck, stuck in your past, in your sin. You can hear God say to you right now, you're forgiven, you're clean. Let's not get stuck and focused on defeat. Let's move forward in victory, in my power. Whatever your next step is, hear God's voice and follow. Heavenly Father, speak to us right now. May you be honored and worshiped right now. It's my prayer through Christ. Amen.